allow me to read the Word of God. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get green that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get green because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in your, our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and brought, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, for, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their da daily ration uh, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also pers persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my stable 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep, and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for, thee, for this people. Good morning, Reno. Good, morning. good to worship with you this morning. Um, it really is a joy. Uh, to have brothers and sisters who are on the same page about God wanting his grace and mercy 
and calling out for his help together, and, and I really do appreciate that. So let's not ever take that for granted, how we can gather and worship the Lord, seek his presence together as, as his people. And, and as we even read psalms that cry out uh, uh, for his help, we can do that together, and you're never alone in doing that. So with that, uh, let's also ask the Lord for his help as we look into his word uh, for this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for being a God who knows every, everything about us. And God, you don't just stand still. God, we confess many times we don't see all that you're doing. But God, we're reminded as we heard before, there's 10,000 things that you're doing and we might know maybe three of them. God, even today, Lord, help us to know one more the way that you're working in our lives and in our church for the sake of your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. Uh, well, as Pastor Dave mentioned, Pastor Bill is away, and he is serving uh, at another conference. And here, uh, we'll be continuing our time in the book of Nehemiah, and we're on chapter 5 now. Just as a quick recap, remember, the city of Jerusalem, they're in shambles. Uh, they were overrun by the city of Babylon, and then later Persia, and they're in exile. And so back at home, it's all broken down. Nehemiah, one of the leaders, he hears about this, and he's heartbroken, and he has this initiative from God to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, particularly the city walls. And then we see in chapter 3 that he actually starts building the wall with all these people from, from Jerusalem, those living in Jerusalem, the surrounding regions, and even people who are exiled, and they come together with one voice, and it's a great sight to see. But then in chapter 4, we start to see opposition, opposition that comes from the outside. We see the surrounding nations, they taunt them and they threaten them. And now we see in chapter 5, we're going to continue this idea of opposition. But now, the opposition doesn't come from the outside, but from the inside. We call it the opposition within. And we see that one of the most destructive ways that God's work is prevented, especially in advancing his church and and his kingdom, it's not actually when the opposition comes from the outside, but from the inside, when there's divisions and problems that occur within the church. Someone once said, whenever there's opposition from the outside, usually you see the people rally together, right? Say that somebody comes and makes fun of renewal. I feel like all of us together will be like, no, and we'll band together, right? And we'll be victorious, right? That doesn't happen. But what oftentimes happens, what Satan does is, he starts creating dissension inside divisions. And that's what we see Satan doing in chapter 5. So we're going to look at this opposition in three ways. Number one, we're going to look at the immediate problem, okay? The immediate problem, the very clear problem that we see. Then we're going to go a little deeper and see the inner problem, the problem of the heart. And then finally, we're going to see the inviting solution. Inviting meaning all of God's people takes part in this solution. So the immediate problem, the inner problem, and then the in- inviting solution, all right? So let's get started with the immediate problem. Like I said, we've seen how God brought his people ultimately together under one common vision, right? To reform the city, to revive the city, and also to revive the presence of God, the temple. And now, so during this time, all of God's people, they're scattered throughout, but they come together under this one vision, and we see that every single person was part of this project all of God's people. Remember, we saw the various craftsmen, even people who weren't even skilled in construction. They all come together, and whether you're in Jerusalem, in the city, from Persia, or the surrounding Judean region, you came together to take part in this city's revival. 
And now when we see people coming together, we're also going to see, as we mentioned, that there's opposition. But this passage takes it a step further by saying that it's not just a few select people who face opposition. It's not just a few select leaders, not just Nehemiah and his co-workers that are facing hardship and difficulty. If all of God's people come together to do his work, then likewise, all of God's people face difficulty together. Because the idea of difficulty and opposition, if you're especially trying to do something, that's not a new idea. Actually, even outside of the church, people know that, right? If you try to do something, you might and you uh, most likely will face opposition. But what this passage is saying, all of God's people together are to face difficulty, hardship, and suffering. And we see this in the beginning of the chapter because who are affected? Who are the ones suffering as a result of God's work? And we see that it's broken down. It's not just Nehemiah. It's not just the select few. But we see in verse 1 that there's a group of people, the poor, who have no land. And because of their efforts in building the wall, they ran out of money, and they need to go purchase grain. So we see the poorest of the poorest. Next, if you look at verse 3, we see kind of the middle class. These are the homeowners, the ones who have fields, and yet they have to mortgage off their land to purchase grain. So we see kind of the middle of the pack, right? And then we actually see another group of people. These are the ones who are actually a little bit uh, more in a dire situation. They already mortgaged off their land and their possessions. Now they can't pay back. And as a result, we see in our passage that they have to go to the extreme of actually sending their family into what we call indentured slavery, where you're paying off your debt by working for another person or family. And so we see this covers the whole spectrum of Israel. There are a few select individuals, the rich, and we'll get to them. But this more or less, it covers every single person in this nation. It's not just a select few, just the leaders, just the community group leaders, just the praise leaders that are suffering. But everyone's suffering together as a result of God's work. And this actually represents kind of the sequence of what was going on during that time. First, you have to go purchase uh, uh, grain because you, can't, uh, uh, you don't have fields. Next, if you actually have to take out loans, you have to mortgage off something. If you can't pay that off, then you would actually go even deeper down into poverty and you have to actually sell yourself into slavery. But nevertheless, wherever you stood amongst these three groups of Israelites, they were all, what, facing economic hardship. Why? Because of the same reasons. The first and most obvious reason is that all the men, they were working on the construction of the wall. Therefore, they could not tend to their fields back at home. They could not do their normal jobs back at home. Remember, the builders and the laborers, they're recruited from a wide area. So when they came to the city, no one was tending to their fields. Actually, just their wives and their families were there. That's why in verse 1, we see a great outcry came from the men and their wives. The first time we see the wives mentioned in this book. Because it was a domestic problem. When the men were off on this wall, their homes, their families weren't being taken care of. And it's a very similar situation to World War II when the men were off to war. Uh, we see kind of the rosy riveters type, right? They're taking care of things. And yet, they're in poverty. And it's affecting everyone. 
So that's the number one reason. The other reason we see is just the long-term effects of, of poverty and war and famine. We see in verse 3 that there was actually a famine throughout the land. And what happens during such times is that if there's a famine, the merchants will often take advantage of this situation. They will sell grain at exorbitant prices so that they can make a, well, uh, make a living off of that. And if you think about that, and if you think about the taxes that the Israelites had to pay, remember, they're not their own nation. They're under Persia's rules. They have to keep paying taxes to Persia. So all of these things put together causes all of them to face economic hardship. Now, you would think, in light of this problem, this immediate problem, the solution is what? Stop building the wall. Take a break. Go back to your homes. Tend to your fields. Do what you got to do and then come back. But we see that is not the solution. That's not even an option because what we see in verse 1, the people and their wives, they have this great outcry, not against God, not against what God's doing, not against Nehemiah, but there's an outcry against the people who are taking advantage of them. We're going to get to them in a little bit. I think it's very easy to gloss over, but I think it's important to note that all groups, all of God's people, even though they're facing the same kind of hardship, even some to the point of entering into slavery, sending even their sons, their daughters into slavery, think about the severity of that. Yet, their immediate solution is not to stop God's work. It's not to compromise the task and the vision that God had placed on their hearts. It wasn't an option. Rather, here's the mindset. God wants us to do his work in a different context, a different situation. This distinction is vastly important because when the hardships came, their immediate response is not to stop, but to think, how is God wanting me to do his work now? in this new situation because they continue to trust and depend on God. God will provide. He will protect us. That's a given. But now what I need to figure out is, in this new context, how can I keep serving him, keep building the wall? The Apostle Paul, we see this in other places in Scripture, in the New Testament. As he's going around spreading the gospel to the known Mediterranean world, he writes a missions newsletter back to one of the churches in Philippi, the book of Philippians. And in that letter, he talks about how he's in prison. In the first chapter, he shares, I'm in prison. I'm writing you uh, this letter to you. Now, in such a letter, what would you think would be his prayer request? What do you think he would be asking for? You know, please pray for me so that, what? You would think that he would be asking that God would take him out of prison, right? That would make most sense. But we see he doesn't ask that. Actually, he sees it in a completely different way. Look at it with me. I want you to know, brothers, he says, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. For Paul, stopping God's work was not an option. 
Stopping the preaching of God's word was not an option. Rather, he assumed that God was simply placing him in a different context. Yes, a context of hardship, but a context that nevertheless still called him to do God's work wherever he went. And he sees that and he believes that. And that's going to be what's important for us. Do you see that? Do you believe that in your situation? Whatever hardship comes, whatever difficulty comes your way. For Paul, the purpose of his imprisonment was not simply suffering for suffering's sake, but he makes the connection. This suffering is for the purpose of the gospel. And so likewise, let us think, whatever hardship you're in, do not think you are suffering just for suffering's sake. That means you are suffering without purpose. But there is always a god propelled reason why you are in such a situation. And for Paul, it was so that the imperial guard came to know Christ. That's number one result. Number two result was that as he did this, other Christians heard about this. They were strengthened. Wow, Paul's spreading the gospel even when he's in prison. I'm in prison. I can keep doing God's work. Do you see what God does? In a new context, a context of hardship, And you and I, we may not be in prison. Nevertheless, whenever we face seasons of hardship and difficulty, brothers and sisters, our go-to answer cannot be church needs to stop. God needs to stop. Community group needs to stop. Relationships needs to stop. Rather, what is God doing now in this new situation? How does he want me to serve him? to my coworker, to my kids, to this new context that he's placed me in. And that will ultimately advance the gospel. You know, one of my first times kind of experiencing this was my uh, time overseas in, in Peru. And there, uh, we were just doing direct evangelism, uh, missions work, helping out with the church. And I actually knew no Spanish. I was one of those kids in high school that when they offered a, another language, I wanted it the easiest route, so I took Latin. Um, can't really use it today, but it did help my um, SAT vocabulary. I knew a lot of root words, but I had no practical use of it. And in Peru, I couldn't speak, actually, I could speak two words. I knew discoteca and biblioteca and all the other tecas I started to learn. But that's all I knew. I could not share the gospel. And also everyone around me, they were on, they were sharing the gospel here and there. They were kind of telling them about Jesus Christ. And I was so discouraged. I was so discouraged because I couldn't even order anything, and I couldn't even do anything. This was the purpose of the trip, to share the gospel. And I couldn't actually, the whole trip, I wasn't able to share the gospel to, to one person. And so in that context, I started looking around. And, you know, when you look for something, you find it. I was looking for something to do because I couldn't do what everyone else was doing. And about two weeks in, I saw that a lot of my teammates, their hair was growing long. And so what I did was I kind of researched and I looked and practiced how to cut hair. That's actually how I learned to cut my own hair. I did it on myself, and I cut my teammates' hair. For some reason, the women did not offer uh, to, 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 to have their hair cut by me, but I cut all my teammates' members' hair. And then afterwards, this Peruvian man, this local, he comes up to me. He's a very stoic, very intimidating guy. We had a hard time kind of getting to him. And he just approaches me. And he knows I couldn't speak Spanish because if he did, all I would say was discoteca. And so he knew. So he just pointed at my hair and he kind of gave this scissor gesture. And I knew he was asking if I could cut his hair. And I cut his hair. And when other people saw that, 
a few other locals came and I cut their hair. And by the end of the trip, a good third of the village had my haircut, Luku haircut. <laughs> That's what I could offer. And I think about that because I remember, I, was, I write, wrote in my journal just how hard this was. What was the purpose of this? Why am I here? Especially when I see everyone else doing all these things. And I saw that in a new context, context of my weakness, a context of my inability to speak the language, God still advances the gospel, perhaps even more so, because in our weakness, he is made strong. Amen. Probably on a note that hits more closer to home, I see this, frankly, in our dear brother and, and elder, Joey Hun. Because if you ask Joe how he's doing, especially when he's at the hospital for treatment, you know, somehow the conversation always leads to him sharing about the people he's meeting with and spending time with to the point where I'm actually having a hard time keeping track of all the people this, the other day. He says, yeah, yeah, I got to talk to Ron. And I'm like, okay, look up who Ron is in our past conversations. And though he's not here presently, he is still advancing God's work in a new context of difficulty and hardship. And even more so, God's light shines brighter. Do you see that? And it's the same thing that's happening to Paul. Wherever Joe is, he's sharing the gospel to his new context. That's the first result. We saw that in Paul, right? The guards came to know Christ. What was the second result? Other people hear about it, and we get encouraged, and we get emboldened to do and continue to serve the gospel, even though we may not be with Paul or Joe. Do you see the double result? God uses that pattern in our lives. Brothers and sisters, there will be seasons of hardship, disease, and difficulty, famines that are out of our control, just like the Israelites. And sometimes the hardship will come as a direct result of you serving and committing to God's church, advancing the gospel. There will also be seasons when you're out of a job. There will be seasons when you're a new parent fumbling around in the fall just trying to get by, or seasons when you're struggling emotionally and relationally. But in such seasons, the answer is not to put God on hold, but to ask how God has placed you in such a season and how God is going to continue to use you in your context for his kingdom. Secondly, the inner problem. I'm going to keep going deeper. Okay, so we saw the immediate problem. Let's go a little bit deeper because this is the problem that God is actually addressing these people. Because the problem wasn't simply the fact that these Israelites were going hungry. Because if that was the only problem, what could have God done? God could have just sent down manna from heaven, right? He's done that before. If the problem was hunger, he would have just given them food from heaven. But he doesn't do that because there's a deeper problem. And we have to remember that the point of this whole book is not just building the wall. It may seem like that, but that's part of the bigger picture of actually rebuilding God's people. You see, the wall is actually finished next chapter, you're going to see in chapter 6. It only takes 52 days to build the wall. We actually have seven more chapters to go in the book of Nehemiah, and that's all about reforming and rebuilding people's hearts. That's what's at stake here, and that's what God is addressing. Because what's the problem? What's the deeper problem? What's the lack of love, the lack of, lack of compassion and care amongst God's people? And that's the deeper pro problem that God wants to address. If we shift our focus now and see how he's addressing this problem, we see that there's going to be the problem of this rich, the, the nobles, the officials. 
that they were part of this problem. We see them exploiting the poor Israelites, right? We see them exacting interest from taxes. And it's a result of them that these Israelites are getting further and further spiraling down into poverty. Now, when we think about these rich nobles, these rich officials, I want us to think about it in three different angles. You can see them as being greedy. You can also see them being oblivious to what's going on. And you can also see them being just very unconcerned, unconcerned about the problems of their fellow brothers and sisters. And let's break it down. The first, they're being greedy. That's very obvious, right? There are those amongst the rich who are intentionally exploiting the poor, taking advantage of the situation, giving out loans. We see in verse 6 that these rich, rich people, they're lending more money and exacting exorbitant interest. And we have records from back then where a typical interest rate for such loans was 20%. Can you imagine the next credit card newsletter you get? 20% interest deal for limited time. But even more so, we see that in such difficult times like famines, they would actually double the interest, 40% interest on these lower, uh, lower, lower um, socioeconomic people. So it's not surprising that the poor had to mortgage off their possessions and even go into slavery just to even survive. So yes, there were those who were greedy. There were even those who were oblivious because in their minds, they're thinking, we're doing the, the community a, a, a favor. We're giving out loans, right? And we're just taking advantage of the business situation. But they had no clue at the suffering that was going on on their fellow kinsmen. And the rich were oblivious because why? What did it take for them to know? It took a great outcry amongst the people. And then that was made known to Nehemiah, who, them, who himself now makes it known to the rich. Do you see how long it takes for them to even know what's going on? They were oblivious. They're also unmoved. Because even though they might know what's going on, they didn't do anything about it. They're unmoved and they, they lacked compassion for their fellow brothers. And it had to take Nehemiah to rebuke them and to challenge them to see the error of their ways, seeing their fellow Israelites struggle in poverty. Even being sent into slavery, it didn't move them at all. And the rich were at least one of these, probably a combination of these three. They were greedy, oblivious, and unmoved with compassion. Now, when we hear this, you and I, we probably don't naturally place ourselves as these rich people, right? We probably don't identify ourselves with the greedy or the oblivious or oblivious or the unmoved. Saying, well, you know, I actually am pretty generous, I think. And before we exclude ourselves and think, well, I tithe to the church, I, I give offering. I give money to missionaries and to those in need around me. I'm not greedy. But when the Bible speaks against greed, is the greed of money the only kind of greed it speaks against? You know, Tim Keller once said that there are different kinds of currencies that we use. Because if you define currency, he says it's just a medium with which we exchange value, is it not? And he says, yes, there is the currency of money. And generosity, it's nothing less than giving money. It's actually but more than just giving money. Because for some, writing a check is not that hard. But taking three hours of your week to invest in the lives of someone else, that's very hard. And the currency of time, the currency of resources, the currency of energy for some of us, it's a lot harder to give up. And so before we exclude ourselves and say, I'm not greedy, I tithe, I give money, Take a deep second to think, are you greedy with other currencies in your life? They were oblivious, 
And just like us, we may be oblivious. You know, oftentimes, it's easy to feel not as bad when we don't know what's going on. We hear about something going on later on and say, well, I didn't know about that. If I had known, I would have done something. But we feel a lot better when we say we had no idea. But then the challenge is, the question is, are you in a situation where you can know? Are you placing yourself in situations, in people's lives, so that you do know what's going on in their lives? Because if right now you don't know anyone in this church who is suffering from something, here's two logical explanations. Number one, either no one is suffering, or number two, you're not in someone's life enough to know who is suffering or facing difficulty or hardship. Those are the only two options. And I don't think the first option is true. There are people in this church facing difficulty and hardship. The question is not, did you know about it? The question is, are you in a situation? Are you placing yourself in the paths of people to know the suffering and hardship? We can be unmoved. We may even see some of these things going on, and if we're honest with ourselves, it doesn't move us. It doesn't change our hearts. It's the same story of the Good Samaritan when the priest and the Levite They walked down the hill and they saw the half-dead, beaten-up man on the side of the road. You know, that priest and Levite, they weren't bad people. They're not the ones who beat up that man. They were just busy people. They just had things to do. They served all week long at the temple. They had to go back home to their waiting wives and their children. They had a to-do list. They had to go pick up food at the grocery store and then go back home. That's why they couldn't pay attention to that broken man to place themselves in the past of that broken man, and we think the same way. There's a list of reasons why we can't invest in this person or that person. There are tasks that we need to do. We need to get from point A to point B. There are a lot of reasons why I can't take intentional steps with my my time, my money, or my resources. Why? Because it's going to compromise the needs that I have or the things that I need to do, the things that I believe that I should do, whether it be my job or my studies or just solely taking care of my family, nothing else. Are you placing yourself in a situation where you're oblivious to the people around you? And that makes it easy for us to be oblivious. The Apostle John writes this, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What makes it worse in this passage is that this was happening in God's church amongst the Israelites. It wasn't the outside nations like Sanballat or the Persians that were taking advantage of the poor. It was their fellow brothers, and this is why they're making this outcry. In verse 1, they made an outcry, not against the Persians, not against God, but against their Jewish brothers, and there's more that's said in verse 5. Verse 5 says, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. They're talking about how their children are being sent into slavery to my fellow brother. Yet they're selling their own sons and daughters to be slaves to their own kind. And it is to this, Nehemiah records in verse 6, he was very angry. Not just simply angry about the poverty, but angry at the fact that it's happening in his church to one another. He's saying, you are exacting interest from your brother. Don't you remember? And this is where he's he's getting at. 
Don't you remember how you once were slaves in Egypt? And don't you remember what it took for God to bring you out of slavery? And yet, after all that God had done for you, you yourself are going to place your brother back into the slavery that God took him out of. That's why he's angry. Because at the end of the day, they are undoing what God had done. That's dangerous. For us to undo what God had done. The greatest redemption story of the Old Testament for all that it took to to purchase them out of slavery so that they could be a people that is holy, that is loving, that is liberated from bondage. Also that they could hold each other in bondage. That's not what God did this for. That's why Nehemiah calls them out. It's for this specific reason. He says, we, as far as able, we need to Give back the interest. We need to show radical generosity. You see, when you read this passage, if you read closely, you're going to go back to the Exodus because the situation is very different. If you look in verse 1 and verse 6, we see that there arose a great outcry of the people. Verse 6, Nehemiah says, I heard their outcry. If you look at that word outcry, if you do a study on the Hebrew word of that word, you're going to see that same word in Exodus 3 when God hears their outcry when they're in slavery. It's the same situation. God says, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I want to deliver them out of Egypt. Verse 9, now behold, the cry of the people has come to me. It's the same word. And do you see, they're living as if God did not uh, save them from Egypt. And so the underlying problem is that the Israelites, especially the rich ones, the underlying problem is they forgot. They forgot what God had saved them from. They forgot what God had saved them to, to be a people no longer in bondage, but rather to be free to live in righteousness and holiness and in love towards one another. And so here's the connection that we must make. Not loving, from your bro- not loving your brother, not caring for them, shows you that you have forgotten what God has done for you. That is what Nehemiah is saying. Have you forgotten? And when we too are occupied with our own walls, oblivious and unmoved about the people that are around us, that God has placed in our lives, in our community groups, it ultimately means that we've forgotten what God has done for us. It means that we've forgotten his radical love, his radical generosity, his radical care for us. Because as John says, if we have God's love abiding in us, can help but move outward. You can't overlook the people sitting next to you in your seats this morning. That was the deeper problem. And now let's look at the solution, the inviting solution. So we see Nehemiah calls together the assembly, calls the rich to repent tells them to stop exacting interest, to give out of generosity. In verse 11, he says, Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil, all that you've been exacting from them. And he calls on them to cancel their debts and pledges. Now, that's all fine and good, right? But see, you need more than just proposing a solution in situations like this because you need a solution that's inviting. You need a solution where people actually will buy into that solution. So he needs to get everyone on board and actually carrying out 
the solution. And in simple words, he needs to get them to do this, not simply present it. And so what's interesting, the way that he does that, when he gets all the people together, his strategy is not love one another. Be more compassionate to one another. I don't know how many of you guys had siblings growing up with my sister. My parents would place us together looking at each other and say, love one another. And I would just stare at her harder. It doesn't work, right? You can't motivate that kind of care and compassion and love. What must happen? Something from the outside needs to break in doesn't it? And that too, this is the same danger that these Israelites are in. And we have to think similarly. We likewise, when we see this inner problem in our lives, the answer is not simply, love one another more, guys. Care for each other more. Have more compassion towards that person. Come on. That's not what Nehemiah does, and that's not the answer, because it doesn't work. Because to care for your neighbor apart from God simply does not work. Because we can leave this sanctuary and say, yes, I agree with what God says about loving our brother and our sister. We love to do all these things. And we love mankind in general. That's what uh, Daschowski says. We love mankind in general. We love the idea of man, the idea of loving. But he says we hate particular people, though. He says, I can be all amen about loving people, but you place me in a room with the best of men, and in 24 hours, I'll hate them. I'll hate the way they chew their food, the way they sneeze and don't cover their mouths. And he says, even the best of men, particularly I'll hate, but I love mankind. And so for us, it's not whether we agree with this. It's not whether we say, yes, I love my brothers and sisters in general. The question is, are you going to pick up that phone, call that sister, call that brother, and say, hey, how can I pray for you? That's what it means to love in particular. That's what it means to not be oblivious, to not be unmoved. We need something outside to enter into our lives to get us to do this. And just like we learned at the retreat, you can't give what you first have not received. You can't give what you first have not received. This is what exactly Nehemiah's solution is. What's his answer? You must fear God. That's his solution. In verse 9, he says, So I said, the thing that you are not doing, you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? And it's interesting. Why fearing God when he's talking about this grace? And he's not talking about this terrifying fear. And you have to understand the way that the word fear is presented in the Old Testament. There's a kind of fear, yes, that's terrifying. And that's not in relation to God. That's what Martin Luther calls servile fear. But then he also says there's a godly fear. He calls it filial fear or family fear. And he kind of describes it as the kind of adoration a child has for his parent when he's doing something wanting to please the parent, wanting the parent to notice because in his mind, in that child's mind, the parent's always around, always seeking to please him. It's kind of like when I used to um, play basketball with little kids. I would try to teach them something and one of their eyes was always on the father to see if the father noticed what they did. I'm like, look at the net. You can't shoot at the father. You've got to shoot at the net. It's that kind of fear, that adoration, wanting to please God, wanting to have God continually in your life. 
And that's what Nehemiah says, because he says, you need something outside of you to come into your life, a godly fear, so that you can now love your brother and sister. See, it's one thing to propose a solution, love one another. But it's another thing to have that solution actually be practiced into our lives. And fearing God, remembering God's generosity, remembering God's care for you, that's the way. And then Nehemiah next goes to show by example what that looks like. If we see later in the passage, he lays down his rights as the governor in order to care for the people. And afterwards, he makes sure that he's not lending out any loans with interest. He stops receiving taxes that he should receive as the governor of the people. And he spends all of the things that he needs to do, these business meetings, these government meetings. He actually pays for all of them with his own money. And it wasn't a small sum of money. 150 Jews and officials plus all these foreign officials gathered at these meetings. He himself pays daily, every day, an ox, six choice sheep, and birds and all kinds of wine. And he says this in verse 18. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. He's saying, I'm using my own money because if I exacted taxes from the people, which I should and I could as governor, it would be too much on them. And so for 12 years, he was governor for 12 years. Every day, he paid for everything out of his own pocket. And he laid down his rights and once the people saw that, once they saw what Nehemiah did for them, once they saw the grace of God entering into their lives through Nehemiah, that's what caused the chain reaction and the people to say, yes, we will now be generous. I want to be generous because of what I've seen you do in my life. And the rich officials, the nobles, they confessed, they declared to the people, we will restore all these things. We will require nothing from them. They said amen. They make a covenant promise to the Lord, and they actually did it. You can't give what you have not first received. There's an incident when this guy, I actually don't like this guy. He kind of tries to set people up and expose them. But in one experience, he tried to expose some fake people who pretended to be homeless and living on the streets. And it, this is project to initially to warn people about the dangers of just giving out money to them. And he wanted to catch them, you know, using the money to buy alcohol or other things. And, and he approaches this man. Now, this man living on the street, his name is Thomas. And he got permission to post this and everything. And in this story, he goes to this man named Thomas, and he gives them $100 okay, to this guy living on the streets. And when he gives him this $100, Thomas, he's very hesitant. It's a lot of money, right? He, he goes, are you sure? Uh, he's a little hesitant. He says, that's a lot of money. And he actually says, I'm starting to tear up. And he kind of makes this kind of awkward approach because he wants to hug him and goes, can I? He's like, yes. And they hug each other. And the guy, as he walks away from Thomas, he says, I hope you can make good use of that money. And it sounds nice, but we know his ulterior motive, right? Because we know he's trying to expose him to see if he's fraudulent. And again, I don't like this whole idea of setting people up, but it was one of those clickbait things where you have, when you click, you have to watch the end because you know, it catches your interest. So he follows Thomas around, and believe it or not, he does walk into a liquor store right after receiving the money, and, and, and the camera catches this. And as it's 
showing, you can hear this guy's voice. He says, see, there it is. He's using it just to buy alcohol. And Thomas, he walks out of this door, clearly his bag packed with new things that he purchased. Now, when he continued to follow Thomas, he was about to expose him. But right when he was about to do that, he felt very embarrassed because what he actually saw was Thomas going around to other people living on the streets and handing out food to them because that's what he had purchased in the store. And this guy was shocked, and he was floored. And he ends up approaching Thomas, and he confesses what he was trying to do. He goes, you know, I saw you go into the liquor store, and as soon as he said that, Thomas laughs. He says, he says this, you thought I was going to get all smacked up drunk. And they kind of laugh. And he says, and this guy just keeps apologizing. You know, I'm sorry for the assumptions. Sorry for the way he tried to set him up. And then he starts asking about Thomas. That's where he finds out his name, his story, getting to know the person, investing his life into that person. And when I was watching that, I was like tearing up. I'm like, I hate clickbait. <laughs> Emotionally, either angry or very sad or cute puppies or something like that. And, but what does this experiment show? Quite different from what he originally intended, right? But it shows this. Once you receive grace and generosity and compassion, that's when you extend that same grace and generosity to someone else. You can't give what you have not first received. Thomas received a small example of grace and generosity, and immediately he can't help but extend that to others. The guy who tried to set him up, he received grace from Thomas, from the way that Thomas still embraced him, and that changes him. Do you see what's going on? We ourselves, we cannot give grace and love and compassion to one another unless we first received it from God. And Nehemiah, he feared the Lord. He walked with him to know the kind of grace and generosity that he received from God. And having received that, he then extends it to the people. And when the people receive that grace, other people see that grace, and they extend it to another person. And this chain reaction happens. And that's what ultimately leads to the people saying, yes, Lord, this is what we will do. And we too, we must see this radical love, compassion of Christ in our lives, in our church, if this solution is going to work. Remember that famous hymn, Amazing Grace? Have you thought about that line? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." That's what it's talking about. Grace received teaches my heart how to fear God and live accordingly to others. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And it's grace that teaches us how to fear God and to orient our lives for the audience of one, Him, and that lives with a continual desire to please Him and to walk in line with what He has done in our lives. So here's the application. Here's the question that I want all of us to walk away with. Have you received the grace and compassion and love of Jesus Christ this week? When you hear that Jesus died for you on the cross, do you see that sacrifice being an act of compassion towards you who was enslaved and living in bondage for living for yourself or being greedy with your money and your love and your time, oblivious, unmoved with compassion? Do you see God's grace in the gospel that says you no longer have to live for yourself? You no longer have to be in bondage to greed or the ways of this world. But now with this grace, you can be free to love others the way I've loved you. 
because we no longer need the world. We have someone who holds the world, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, when he died and rose again, he did it so he can say to you what God says to the Israelites, I will be your God. You will be my people. And once you see the grace behind that statement, only then you can go to your brother, you can go to your sister and say, I will be your brother. I will be your sister because I belong to Christ. So please do not walk away this morning thinking, I need to love this person more. Please walk away thinking, God has loved me so much. And I'm excited to see how many stories of love and compassion will take root in our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study your word, God, we know it's not just study. Just like we saw in our passage, it's, just, it's not just about building a wall. It's not just about building great ministries, great Easter egg hunts. But Lord, it's about our hearts. God, help us to live according to the way you want us to live as people who received grace and love and compassion. May that start this week with someone. Lord, we don't ask that you send someone in our lives. We pray that you help us to be in their lives so that we can extend that grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let us rise together and close in praise.